Right, so this morning, I want to continue on the series on the book of Hebrews, where we are learning from this, I call it an incredible book, written to the Jewish Christians, the Hebrew people who were scattered all around, who had a great understanding of the Old Covenant, of the Torah, of the laws, and that's a beautiful argument used to show throughout the book of Hebrews how superior Jesus is and the new covenant is to the old. And that's the basic theme of the book. So I've entitled this one, Flowing or Fighting and the Rest of God. The rest that God has for us is beautiful. You know that God doesn't want your soul to be at war. He doesn't want your soul to be anxious, frustrated, depressed, fearful, always agitated. God has designed us as human beings to enjoy life. But we all know we make choices that sometimes aren't good for us. And when we make those choices, he says, let me help you because I want you to make less and less bad choices. So be led by my spirit. But if you make a bad choice, come to me, but I've got rest for your soul. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He will restore your soul. So there's a rest that God has for us as people. And Jesus Christ is the one who came in this glorious gospel and he did everything that needed to be done to open up to us the most incredible place of rest here. And it's all locked up in this beautiful gospel that um, the scriptures, the beautiful scriptures unfold. But we can either flow with the gospel We can flow with the truth of God so that we rest in his rest. Or we can fight the gospel. We can continue to question and argue, and then we don't get to experience the rest of God. We know about it, but I don't want to know about the gospel. I want to live in the gospel. I don't want to know about rest. I want to live in rest. I want to experience the rest that Jesus speaks of here. And God's rest is is not dependent upon circumstances because you could be in prison like Paul was and have the rest of God here. So today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. And a little bit of a a backdrop to last week's message which flows into this because remember we're going through the book. So it was, was, if that was written there, this is not a new chapter. This is just the same train of thought, the same logical progression. So he says, let me remind you, okay, let me remind you, rather, what he says, let me remind you, holy brothers and sisters, that's the church, who share in a heavenly calling, all of us share in this heavenly calling, preached about that last week, consider Jesus, the apostle, the sent one, the one who truly lived this heavenly calling, and high priest, and the one who was more faithful than Moses to us. Moses was faithful Say faithful, because that's, that's what I'm going after, faithful. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Last week I preached that. But Jesus is faithful over the house as a son, because the inheritance is in the house. The inheritance are the people, us. So he is so faithfully committed to his church, to his people. He will never be unfaithful. And so this is all about the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithfulness of God that is the theme that now Hebrews 3, 7 to 19 tracks with. But in verse 7 to 19, which we'll look at just now, the writer of Hebrews says, he takes us back to the book of Exodus 
for some reason, he goes, well, let's go back and learn something of what took place in the book of Exodus. So in Exodus, we know it's the great exodus of Israel out of Egypt. They had lived in slavery under Pharaoh, and it had been a horrible, horrible life for so long. And then God mightily and powerfully delivers them. And he leads them through Moses out of Egypt. God displays incredible power in front of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh just says, go. I can't keep you in longer. I'm afraid. Go. And then they go through the Red Sea. And God literally opens the Red Sea. And then the winds blow and the Red Sea closes. Once all of Israel have left, closes over the Egyptian army. We picture it like in a movie. Happens in two seconds. No, it doesn't happen in two seconds. There were 600,000 Israelites crossing. Takes a long time to cross. 600,000. And that's why the scriptures say, and then when the Egyptian army came, and they weren't probably 100 meters behind them. They could have been a, a, a day's journey behind. Who knows how long? And then it says that the Lord caused the winds to blow. And then the sea started to close over the Egyptian army. And again, it just kept blowing and closing. And so we've got to understand these things happen not like in the movies. But what happens is they get, a, they get across into the wilderness. And in Exodus 15, they start to sing and praise God for their deliverance. Yeah. That's a logical thing to do. If I had just been delivered, that's what I would do. Can you imagine 600,000 of them worshiping God and going, God delivered us from those Egyptians. God has set us free from slavery. God has opened the Red Sea for us. And there's this amazing scripture that they sing, all of them, led by Moses. And this is what they sing. You have led in steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Can you hear the grace of God in that? It's like we haven't done anything. You came. You delivered us. You, you loved us steadfastly. You redeemed us. You have guided us. And you're taking us to our rest, to the promised land, Canaan. So this was their experience. They are, and Miriam takes a tambourine at the end and she starts a, a second bit of dancing and praising. And this is beautiful. So anyway, they start their journey now in the wilderness. No McDonald's, no spa, Woolworths, wilderness. Get the picture. Three days, three days of journeying. They run out of water. Like, is that unusual? In a wilderness? No? It's normal life. You walk in the desert and you only take this much water, at some stage you're going to run out of water. Go figure. So now imagine they came to God and they said, you know what, Lord, Moses, help us. Because of course they didn't speak to God like we speak to God because Jesus hadn't yet come. So they go to Moses, hey, hey Moses, wow, man, you're an amazing leader. We saw what you did in the Red Sea. We saw how, how God used you, and we remember the amazing things. Now, we've run out of water. Is there any chance you could ask God for some water? Because I think water is an easy thing compared to the Red Sea. They could have prayed like that. Instead, they come to Moses. Hey, Moses, what's going on here? Where's the water? So there's a bit of grumbling, and there's a bit of tension in them, and there's a bit of like, like entitlement. Anyway, they find this pool of water, 
and they taste it and the water's bitter. So God shows Moses a piece of branch, some bark, and he throws the branch or bark in, and of course a little bit of a chemical reaction, and the water changes its flavor because of the bark. And so they start to drink the water, and the water tastes good. And straight away, God is good. God is amazing. Isn't that awesome? He provides water for us. Anyway, from there they move and they come to an oasis, 12 beautiful springs of water. Now it's, it's, it's lavish, it's beautiful. Fresh, awesome, 70 palms. It's just an amazing time. But then they've got to leave there because now they're on their way to their rest. God has promised them rest. In other words, they won't have to be in the wilderness anymore. They can set up homes, they can build, they can farm, they can have livestock there, and they won't have to keep on moving. So they walk for a while, and guess what they run out of? Food. And they come to Moses. They don't come, hey, Moses, you're such an awesome leader, man. I mean, we've, we've seen God do amazing stuff through you. Is there any chance you could ask our good father, who in his steadfast love that we sang about, whom you, who, who redeemed us by his grace and guarded us thus far, do you think he would help us with some food? No. Come to Moses. And they quarrel with him. And they grumble at him. And they say, wish we could go back to Egypt. At least in Egypt we had food to eat. We had bread in the morning and we had meat at night. Why can't we go back there? It's a human heart. So God says, don't worry. Moses, not your fight. Let me do it. I will rain down bread from heaven. That's where we sing that song. You hear it in the, in the soccer league. Eh? Bread from heaven. Rains down this manna that had never been seen before. Hard to describe. The Bible doesn't even know how to describe it exactly. It says it, says it was like wafer, like wafer, but with a honey taste. And every morning there was manna from heaven. And it said, go out each day, the Lord said. Collect what you need. It'll last you the whole day. And tomorrow, I will give you fresh manna. So don't collect for tomorrow. Trust me and see what I will do. Guess what man does? Some of them go out and they think, let me take some for tomorrow. Take some for tomorrow. Other guys don't take anything for tomorrow. They trust God. The guys who have taken extra that night, before they go to sleep, it's like, I don't have to go out in the morning. I've just got my own stash here. Wake up in the morning, maggots. Frot. Can't eat it. God says, let me look in your heart, man. Will you trust me? Or will you make your own plan? Will you trust in yourself? Or will you trust me? He says, don't, don't collect on the Sabbath. That's a day of rest. Collect double. Amazing thing is, and then they said, oh, what about some meat? God said, no problem. I'll bring you quail. And in the evening, quail would come to the camp wherever they were. And they would eat meat at night and they'd eat bread in the morning. And every day on this journey, as long as they were in the wilderness, every day God fed them because he's faithful. If he said, I will take you to your rest, he will take you to your rest. But you're not on, an, you're not on a high-speed train or on a conveyor belt where you just stand, like in the airports. You're walking in the wilderness in real life where your water runs out and your food runs out. But do you think God is good when your food runs out? 
Can you trust him? And then after that, they come to a place called Rephidium. And in Rephidium is the real, is what takes place around the crux of the text of Hebrews chapter 3. So we're now going to um, look at this portion and, and, and realize what exactly went on. Because why does the writer of Hebrews, who's in the new covenant, want to take us back to look at something that took place there? What can we learn from it which will help us in our everyday experience of walking with God? And the bottom line is in Rephidium, they, get to, uh, they run out of water again. It's like a common occurrence in the desert. Go figure. And so again, they don't come to Moses and go through the beautiful thing of what an awesome leader you are and how God has provided for us and we saw you last time, so I'm sure you can help us this time. And they moan and they grumble. And the Bible says, and they tested God. It's quite a thing to test God because you know what it implies? That if you are going to test God, then basically it is in essence saying that you are the one who sets the standards by which God will pass or fail. It's quite a thought, eh? The second thing it implies is not only are you testing God and applying the standards, it means that you believe that you are good enough and wise enough to set the scales of whether it's a pass or a fail. And they tested God because they said, where is the water? Not, God, we ask you for water. Where is the water? It's like, we don't believe that you're actually here providing for us. And it comes to this amazing verse. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So Massa means quarreling, Meribah means testing. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on this now because he talks about the testing of the Lord. I always wondered, how did they test God? What exactly were they testing? What, what were they pressing God on? I know they were annoying God, but what were they testing him on? And back in Exodus 17, 7, here's the answer. Because they were basically saying, are you still with us or have you left us? This, friends, is the reality of everyday life that you and I will face. Because something is going to happen that's not what you planned. And when you ask, are you still here or have you left me? Are you still hearing my prayers? Because it feels like they're just bouncing off the ceiling. You're basically saying, are you still faithful or are you unfaithful? And you're going after the very essence and integrity of the nature and character of God when you don't trust Him. Because trust and faithfulness is inherently who He is. And Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. He will not deny you. He will not leave you or forsake you, though we feel like He has when something happens and we don't have water. 
Thus, it might not be water. But I'll get to that in a short while. Right, so I want us to now look at um, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. Therefore, as the, this is the writer of Hebrews now, writing to the Christians who are Jews, who have now converted. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. The writer of the scriptures calls it the rebellion. This was a rebellion against God. This was a testing of God. Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. See, the Israelites saw God deliver them. They saw the works of God. They saw the power of God. They saw the works of God. But there's something they didn't understand. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. You can see the works of God and not know his ways. And when you don't know his ways, it's hard to trust him. Because works are just impressive. But when you know somebody, you can trust them. Um, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And I used to read this, and I used to go, God, that's very harsh. Like, seriously? They, they just were struggling for some water in a desert. And by the way, you know how that water thing happened? God said, I'll pass before you, Moses. Go out, take the elders, go up to the rock of Horeb, take the staff, hit the rock, and out of the rock, waters will flow. And that's what happened. They saw that again. So they keep on seeing the mighty works of God, but they don't know his ways. I thought, God, why do you say now that because of this, this was the point. After, after everything he'd done and all the other stuff, the bitter water, the other water, the manna, the quail, this was the point where finally God said, that's it. They have tested me and they will not enter my rest. Why is it such a big deal to God? Carry on reading. Take care, brothers. And sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So he's saying, learn from them. They did something that resulted in an evil, unbelieving heart. We're not talking about murder or adultery, sex orgies. We're talking about something happening in here that hardened their heart to God. And because of that, they never entered the rest. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not sin itself, by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin has got a way, because Christ has dealt with sin, but sin has got a way of deceiving us into thinking and feeling differently to how God intends us to think or feel. So when we miss the mark and we do something against the will of God, we start to think and imagine and feel things that are not true. And we start to go down a path that God never wants us to go down. And that becomes a hardened heart towards the goodness of God. 
and the, and the wonder of his steadfast love and faithfulness. And he says, for we have come to share in Christ. He says, wake up, guys. We are sharing in Christ. We have this liberty and this rest. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. It's the second time it says that. Go back and look what happened in the rebellion when they tested God. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? In other words, all that generation died before they entered Canaan, their promised land, because of the hardness of their heart and their unbelief. They didn't trust God. Um, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So they never got to experience the promise of God because of a hardened heart and unbelief. So the reality is this, friends. Unbelief still has, because the writer of Hebrews is picking up on this, unbelief still has the power if we let it stay for us to miss the experience of the beautiful riches of God's kingdom, the promise that he's given us the rest that he has for our soul. Unbelief is a big enemy. And what is, what is, what is it about believing? What is, it, what is the unbelief? It's not, can I walk on water now? It's, can I trust God? Is God faithful? Because they tested him when they said, where is God? Has he left or is he still among us? And that's where you and I face this experience, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, sometimes once a year. Who knows how often it's going to happen? But we, but we live basically in a fallen world. And we're going to face the reality. Where is God now? Yeah. And when we start to think that, you can't stop the first thought. Because we're human. So I, I can't stop the first thought. Where is God now? But what happens with that thought after that will either be the deceitfulness of sin, hardening my heart, and unbelief taking root that I cannot trust God, I better make a way. Or, no, I can trust God. That's a lie and I will not go down that road. I believe God is faithful. He will see me through to the end. Because if he said I'm taking you to the promised land, then he will take you to the promised land. So sin's got a way of deceiving us, friends. Pulling the wool over our eyes. That's what deceiving means. It means it's not true, but you think it's true. You're deceived. It's got a way of doing that. Canaan, this beautiful land, with, like flowing with milk and honey, was a beautiful place after the wilderness, was their promised land. Canaan's not our promised land. Canaan's not our promise from God. What's the promise from God for us? His kingdom. It's not a geographical place. He said it's not there, it's not over there, it's in here. The kingdom of God is within you. Where the rule and the reign of God comes and the peace of God reigns. And no matter what's going on around you, you are absolutely rock solid, established by God and secure in His love. And no matter what happens to me, it's going to be okay. Because I 
trust his faithfulness. That's our promise. That's our promised land. That's our Canaan. It's the kingdom of heaven. Matthew called it the kingdom of heaven. Others called it the kingdom of God, the other writers of the Gospels. And Jesus showed us what that kingdom is. He showed us what it looked like. It's when the will of God comes and healing comes and there's forgiveness and there's mercy and there's truth and there's freedom and there's joy and there's peace in the Holy Spirit. It's all these beautiful things. And we're the righteousness of God. And God wants us to enjoy this rest. Rest from our dead works. Rest from our self-effort. Rest from trying to earn God's favor. I need to do this so that God will keep his eyes on me. Rubbish. Jesus did what you and I couldn't do, so God will always keep his eyes on you when you believe in Jesus. That's it. He will not take his eyes off of you. He will not block his ears to you. He will hear every prayer that you pray. Don't give up believing. He's faithful. Do not let the deceitfulness of sin harden your heart to unbelief that you start to question God. Are you still here? Have you heard me? How come you bless them? You don't like me? Don't you love me? What have I done that I can't be forgiven? Deceitfulness of sin. Bad thinking. As some call it, stinking thinking. You see, one of, one of the big problems that we, or one of the, um, what's the word I want to use? One of the real misconceptions that we as human beings embrace as Christians is this. If God is good, and if Jesus died for my sins, and God says he loves me, then nothing horrible will ever happen to me or around me. not true why because we live in a fallen world and so stuff happens around us the whole time that affects us that's because of the fallenness of man because of the selfishness of man the exploitation of man the injustice of man the greed of man the lust of man all this stuff happens perpetually around us so let's think ah should there just have been water on tap for the Israelites in the wilderness no. Look at Psalm 23. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil. Not because I'm your shepherd, you will be exempt from the valley of the shadow of death. No. Though you walk through it, I am faithful. My rod and my staff comfort you. I will prepare a banqueting table for you not in the absence of your enemies, in the presence of your enemies. That's real love. In the presence of your enemies, you can have rest. Jesus ruled in the midst of his enemies, Psalm 110. Not in the absence of his enemies. Anybody can rule in the absence of enemies. But it takes the power of God in us and the grace of God in us, someone who believes God is faithful, to rule in the midst of your enemies. In other words, your enemies may do what they like, but they cannot take the kingdom, the peace and the joy and the righteousness of God that is in Christ Jesus. But this is only our rest if we believe God is faithful. The moment we start to question and doubt God, we're in shaky ground. So let's think about this though. 
I said earlier, you cannot stop that first thought. The Bi- you know, the Bible's so cool. It's just the most incredible wisdom. In fact, the first thought isn't sin. James says that. Even though that first thought is not God glorifying, it's not sin. It's not, you haven't missed the mark of God. It's just your humanity. Even Jesus had thoughts that weren't the best thoughts and glorifying to God. Why? Because he was a man who was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. So what happens is the first thought comes. It's what happens after the first thought or what you do with the thought that determines where you end up. Can't stop the thought. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he feels in his humanity, I can't do this. Please take this cup of suffering from me. I can't do this. But then he prays three times. And in his prayers, he receives this incredible grace and comfort to know, I am faithful. I will get you through it. You will succeed. And then he can do it. He says, okay, not my will be done but yours. Hanging on the cross, and I preach on this, Psalm 22. Hangs on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I preach this long and hard. God doesn't forsake him because God cannot be unfaithful. But he feels in his humanity, I'm all alone. I'm left. I'm going to die alone. But then on that cross, I believe, this is the way my, my understanding goes. As, he, as, that, as that first thought comes in, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly he starts to think who my father really is. My father can't forsake me. My father can't look away from me. The fullness of the deity dwells in me. He's not going to leave me now. The Spirit of God has filled me without measure. Where is he going to go? I'm his and he is mine. I'm his beloved. He said he loves me unconditionally. I, he goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He says, it is finished. I have done it. I have run the race. Because he believed God is faithful. God will not quit. So when you have that first thought, where are you, God? It's okay. But you do what the Israelites did, and you keep coming back to that, and you keep saying, have you gone? Do you love them more than you love me? Am I, in the, am I at the back of the bus now? Have I lost your favor? That continual questioning is actually a testing of God's faithfulness. And that's the part that he says, that part will become unbelief. And you won't experience the rest of God, the peace of God, and the joy of God when you keep questioning, are you still here? I want to tell you the Bible teaches, and I close with this, the Bible teaches clearly He is still here. He is still with you. He will never leave you. The Holy Spirit has been given to you until the end of the age. Even when you sin, the Holy Spirit's not going anywhere. You can grieve him. You can do something that's not delightful and beautiful in the kingdom. He won't go anywhere. He will be with you always to the end of the age. Even when you are faithless, even me, when I'm faithless, the Bible says, it's a beautiful inspired book of the scriptures, even when I am faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. His very essence and integrity is I am trustworthy. 
I am faithful. I will never leave you or forsake you. So when we face that moment in our little wilderness where the water tastes bitter or there's no water or there's no meat or there's no money in the bank to pay that bill or the car gets broken down and you don't know what to do or this person says something horrible about you, I want to urge you, he's there. He's not going anywhere. Bring that feeling to him in prayer and worship so that the deceitfulness of sin doesn't cause an unbelieving heart and you miss the rest of this kingdom that he has for you. Let's stand together.